welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Good morning, everybody. My name is... I'll get to that later. Will all who care to please join me in a moment of silence, followed by the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Hi, I'm Tegan, your moderator for this meeting. This is an open SNON meeting with an essay panel. This meeting is being recorded. Personal audio and visual recordings are not permitted. Please take a moment to silence all mobile devices. Because our common welfare comes first, here are the, actually, sorry, need to do something else first. Would an SA panel member please read what is a sexaholic and what is sexual sobriety from the SA white book? I'm Lindsay. I'm a sexaholic. What is a sexaholic and what is sexual sobriety? We can only speak for ourselves. The specialized nature of Sexaholics Anonymous can best be understood in terms of what we call the sexaholic. The sexaholic has taken himself or herself out of the whole context of what is right or wrong. He or she has lost control, no longer has the power of choice, and is not free to stop. Lust has become an addiction. Our situation is like that of the alcoholic who can no longer tolerate alcohol and must stop drinking altogether but is hooked and cannot stop. So it is with the sexaholic or sex drunk who can no longer tolerate lust but cannot stop. Thus, for the sexaholic, any form of sex with oneself or with partners other than the spouse is progressively addictive and destructive. We also see that lust is the driving force behind our sexual acting out. And true sobriety includes progressive victory over lust. These conclusions were forced upon us in the crucible of our experiences in recovery. We have no other options. But we have found that acceptance of these facts is the key to a happy and joyous freedom we could otherwise never know. This will and should discourage many inquirers who admit to sexual obsession or compulsion, but who simply want to control and enjoy it, much as the alcoholic would like to control and enjoy drinking. Until we have been driven to the point of despair, until we really wanted to stop but could not, we did not give ourselves to this program of recovery. Sexaholics Anonymous is for those who have the, who know they have no other option but to stop, and their own enlightened self-interest must tell them this. Thank you. Because our common welfare comes first, here are the guidelines for this meeting. The panel members will each share their experience, strength, and hope for three to five minutes. 
At that time, written questions for the panel from the SNN audience will be asked by the moderator. Questions are to be written on the cards provided at, um, in your registration packets, and um, there will be a runner. She's in the back of the room, and if you could just pass your question cards to the center, I will um, let you know when she's going to be coming by between questions to pick those up from you. I will screen the questions for appropriateness, and um, all questions will be asked anonymously. Questions will be addressed to the panel as a whole, not directed toward a specific panelist. And panel, remember that panel members are not experts, and they do not speak for or represent SA as a whole. Rather, they're, they're sharing their own experiences as related to the questions being asked. So... That being said, I'm going to pass the microphone to our panelists and allow them to share their experience, strength, and hope for three to five minutes. Um, should I just go down the row or do I? Yeah? <laughs> okay. Uh, my name is Brian Kay. I'm a sexaholic. Um, experience, strength, and hope. Let's see. I, I, I remember coming into these rooms. Um, this conference actually about eight years ago, and, well, actually eight years ago, and um, had a deer in headlights look, um, didn't want to be here, didn't plan on being at a um, conference for sex addicts and their pissed off wives or partners. Um, I didn't come with my wife at that time because she wanted nothing to do with me, the program, recovery, or anything of that sort. Um, We'd been married 10 years at the time when Discovery came out. Um, of course, Discovery had happened since year one of our marriage, pornography, masturbation, um, and the like, and it progressively got worse. I didn't have all of this nomenclature, you know, progressive disease and all of that stuff. I just knew that whatever my fix was, it wasn't enough, and lived a double life for a better part of our 10 years of marriage, um, two kids, um, we had two kids at the time of discovery and, um, six and four. And, um, I was in a career where it was very public. I was a public person. Um, and, um, when she finally had enough, she had the courage to say, I'm done. And it was the end of not only, um, life as I knew it, um, but, um, because of my years of not only pornography, but crossing lines that I said I would never, ever, ever cross. And that line just kept on getting farther and farther and farther down the line. In 2009, uh, June of 2009, my wife told me she was done um, via email, said not to come home, and that our marriage was done, and um, that she wasn't going to put up with uh, what I was doing and, and the, our relationship the way it was. Um. And uh, as a result, I lost an 18-year career. Um, my story was very, very public um, on the Internet and, and public. Um, and so I thought I lost, well, I did lose everything. It was Father's Day of 2009. I was in a hotel room because I'd come back from Washington, D.C., um, and I just was at a hotel, and I was looking at a picture of my two kids on Father's Day, and I was saying goodbye because I said, you know, I can't stand the shame or the guilt of what I've done to my family, to me. 
Um, I resigned from my job, and then my story got public. Um, there was public shame, scorn, all of those things in my brain that was just so horrific and so bad, um, given the profession that I was in. And as I was saying goodbye to my kids, I heard this voice that said to me, um, well, you can do that if you want, because I was going to kill myself. You can do that if you want, or you can get help. And at the time, you know, I was a very religious person, and um, I didn't really think that that was the voice of my higher power at all. Um, but I heard that voice. It was like an audible voice. I wasn't on drugs. Um, I heard that voice, and so I picked up the phone and called someone that I knew had a similar situation as mine, that had gone through some similar situations, and that somehow you know was in some sort of recovery. And that began my journey. And um, I remember my first SA meeting, um, I met my sponsor. I, I didn't ask for a sponsor. I was given one. Um, I was assigned one uh, uh, because my ego would have found someone that I could kind of hoodwink or pull a fast one on. Or if I got to choose one, I'd pick one that I want, not one that I needed. And um, so this man told me, he said, Brian, you don't know bleep, so shut the bleep up. It was the first words that he said to me. <clears throat> and coming from where respect and reputation is such a big deal, I was like, who the hell do you think you are? You don't know me. And even after I had lost everything, my ego was still rampant. And, um, and so that began my journey. And, you know, his, he said to me, you are no longer in management. You don't get to make decisions. And of course, my thought was, I'm a grown ass man. You don't get to tell me what I have to do or don't do. And, um, but, uh, he, he, he loved me. He loved me, and I couldn't do anything for him. I was I was so used to being in transactional relationships where, hey, if I do something for you, then you're going to do something for me. We would never say it that way, but that's the way it was. And um, But he loved me. He opened his home to me. I was homeless for a period of time. He said, where are you going to live? This is a man that I met literally three days later. He's like, where, 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 where are you going to live? And I said, I, I don't know. I was going to live in my car because I wanted to you know, pay penance for all the things that I had done. He said, no, you're going you're gonna to live with me. And, um, and then, um, so I did that for several months and, um, uh, and then moved into a sober living home, uh, worked my steps, I called him every day, took direction as best as I could. And it was a, you know, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but, you know, he, he said, look, I may not have answers, but in this room full of people, there's a lot of experience, strength, and hope. You are not unique, Brian. And, um, and so, Follow directions and, um, you know, fast forward a few, about five months later, my wife saw enough behavior change in me. I saw enough change that she was willing to go back to, uh, you know, our therapist and, um, have a couples therapy session. And at that time said that she made, she saw a little glimmer of hope because, um, I was willing to follow the directions of another human being. And as a result, um, she invited me back into the home. And for three and a half years, I lived in a separate bedroom. I didn't so much as touch my wife. Um, one of the boundaries said was no physical touch. And I said, okay. Um, and, uh, and so for three and a half years, we co-parented and built probably the most intimate time in our relationship ever, even to this day. Um, and I moved back into the bedroom of, you know, a few years ago. Um, uh, but uh, those three and a half years, we both agree, are probably the sweetest time in our relationship because we learned how to partner together and um, that sex was indeed optional. So, um, and today, you know, uh, 
you know, we're, we're, things are certainly not perfect, um, because I'm in the equation. <laughs> and, uh, so that's gonna certainly bring the equity down a little bit, but, but by the grace of my higher power and uh, the power of this fellowship and this community, the power of the program, steps, and my higher power, um, I'm living one day at a time grateful for the grace of God. Hi, I'm Greg. I'm a sexaholic. I'm going to time myself because I'm not good with this. Um, I uh, uh, Life came crashing down for me in 2001, but I didn't join the program when it came crashing down. Um, I am a very stubborn person. I'm very headstrong. And so I had to bloody myself up a bit before I was willing to walk into the rooms of SA. Um, I was arrested in 2001. Uh, for decent exposure, I was arrested again, uh, was registered as a sex offender. I was going to court ordered counseling. I was doing all these things, but, and I, when it, when it was, and, and all that was going on. And when it was suggested that I might be a sexaholic, I balked at the idea. Um, don't ask me why I balked at the idea, because all the evidence was pretty much there in court papers. Um, <laughs> but, um, after a year of it being suggested that I go to SA, I finally said, uh, th- again, I lost a lot of other things again in relationship. I destroyed a uh, five-year relationship, um, broke somebody's heart to the point where I watched them cry, and I could do nothing to console their crying because uh, I knew every tear they were shedding was because of my behavior. Um, finally, um, I, ca- I was... Um, Similar. Um, I think the end of sexaholic disease is suicide. That's my personal opinion. Not the program, but I think the end, um, I know the end of the alcoholic is liver disease and death. I think the end of the sexaholic is suicide and death. Because uh, that's where I was in 2004. Uh, May 8, 2004, I sat in my, in my room. I was facing a probation violation for having pornography. Uh, any kind of pornography was illegal. Um, it's kind of weird. Any pornography was illegal, but masturbation was great. That's how the court worked. I don't know how they figured that out. Um, um, and so um, I was facing 90 days in jail, and I was ready to kill myself because I couldn't stop, even with the, the law looking over my shoulder. Um, it still took me about two weeks to get to SA at that point, but I got in in June of 2004. Um, I was desperate. I was alone. I didn't know what else was left. I said to my higher power, well, whatever you want me to do, I'll just do it. And I got a sponsor in week two. So I said, hey, you want a sponsor? I said, okay, I'll take a sponsor. Um, and the sponsor said, hey, call me. I said, oh, okay, I'll call. He wasn't any tough about it. He was just, hey, call me. We're going to be every week and work the steps. I didn't really have a whole lot else to do. Um, <laughs> my time was pretty free. Uh, I, I, had, I had pretty much ensured that. Um, and so I... Um, I worked the steps. I did what he said. I just tried it. I mean, what else was I going to do? Um, and I just kind of went wherever I was asked. And um, the steps, I, I, I realize now, my first time through the steps was about nine months. Um, my program has not been uh, a perfect program by any means. About a year into it, I got complacent. I just got lazy. My sponsor moved. I uh, lost my sobriety after that first year. Uh, but the changes kept happening, and I started read up. I started, you know, started doing it in my own power for a while. I got a little, all kinds of things. I've made a lot of mistakes along the way, and for whatever reason, I've learned from those mistakes. Um, by the grace of God, I haven't masturbated in a long time. I still have problems with pornography at times. That's why I've reset my sobriety a few times. It's been a number of years now, but um, you know, it's like you know, was it 
I always forget the year. My meeting always reminds me. I've learned to not hold on to the date so much. It's for the hope of others, I get that. But for me, I have today. Uh, the uh, last time I reset was in July of 2015, I believe. It, was, I, it wasn't the exact date. I didn't even care about the exact date. It was sometime after, sometime before that. Um, but uh, I'm grateful that I haven't masturbated. I'm grateful that I'm just, I have a place to go. And I keep, my problem is I struggle with working the steps. I struggle with continuing to work the steps. Um, I'll work them for a while. I'll get slack. I'll get lazy. My butt gets on fire. Something happens, and I get back to working them again. Um, it's, uh, it's a trudging road for me. It's a trudging road of destiny. Um, and, um, you know, I had a lot of things that happened, and I've gotten in all kinds of, I've, I've grown a lot since then. And that's the thing I can say, I can say, and my experience has had a lot of growth. Um, I've wanted to quit a number of times. I've wanted to give up. Is it worth it? Um, in the end, it's worth it. In the end, when I'm, when I'm sane and I'm sober, it's worth it. And I'm grateful for that. Uh, I'm grateful for uh, what it has given me. And um, the one thing I'll, I'll, I'll show in with my share, one of the things I remember, and I still remember this day, that it was about a, it was probably just, just before, you know, just after, actually. I think I lost my story that first time, the last time I actually masturbated. Um... And even about a month after that, my sponsor, my, my new sponsor, my grand sponsor before, turned to me and said, um, you know, you're not the same guy that walked in these rooms. I had nobody else to say that to me. I had no spouse, no nothing. I was single. Um, and um, and that, was a, that was a very powerful moment for me. And it still is. I, I know I'm not the same person. And a lot of my friends who think I'm like this, or people who've met me in the last five years, think, you don't know old Greg. You don't know how insane and crazy I was. Um, there's very few people around that still do, and I'm really grateful for those that do because they remind me. And I'm grateful that uh, recovery has done a lot to change me, and i got a lot more to grow. So thanks for letting me share. Thank you, Greg. Sure, absolutely. I can't see. I don't have my glasses on. Oh, I'll just yeah, tap you. Thank you. Hi, my name is Tom. I am a recovering sexaholic. Um, most grateful to be at this meeting. Uh, my sobriety date is May 15th of 1996. For that, I am never sufficiently grateful. Um, a little bit of my history. Uh, I came into to Sexaholics Anonymous at the strong suggestion of the state of California. Um, I was on parole for a sex offense, of all things. Um, and uh, we were sharing in the last meeting that uh, I said, well, I, I had no intention of working steps, and in fact, I really didn't want to get sober because I wasn't a sexaholic. Just sign the darn card and let me go. Um, and once I, I admitted to my innermost self that I was sexaholic and that probably no human power on earth would ever cure me, um, I bought into it. I listened to the stories in those meetings and they told my story. Um, and I listened to the shares and... I couldn't help but admit that, that I was a sexaholic. And, and so today I can tell you that, that I'm not in the program to get a card signed anymore. Um, but I am here because of years and years and years of sexual addiction that started when I was, uh, just a little kid. Um, when I was arrested, it didn't occur to me that my wife and I would not live together again for eight years. Um, and it wasn't because she kicked me out of the house. The state of California did that for her. 
Um, it was because they wouldn't let me go back home. My kids were, were too young. And, and so my early essay days were, were alone. And you could probably think, well, that was probably good. And the mystical part of me would like to say, yes, that was God's plan. But the practical part of me says, yes, that was God's plan. Um, and uh, a year after I got into program, uh, I came to, of all places, the Unity Conference. And I remember um, uh, one of the uh, people in my group, I, I, I met his wife, and she was an Essanon, and she was a black belt Essanon. And, and she took me over to the literature table. She goes, let me, let me help you pick out some literature. So, so we picked out some Essanon literature. And that weekend, I called my wife, and I said, do you want to do this this?" 12-step recovery with me. And she kind of looked at her watch, I guess. And, but she, she says, yeah, okay. And so that was, um, that was, that was probably in, in 2000. So, uh, she also has become a black belt Essanon. <laughs> During that time, um, in early days of recovery, uh, we both had to work our own programs. Um, Definitely uh, not with each other, looking over each other's back. Um, emotionally, we came together probably more than ever. Um, we did recovery together. We began dating again, so to speak. Um, we, uh, you know, we just progressed um, in reunification. Uh, eventually, we were able to get back together. Um, and like I said, that was eight years. We. Uh, we got back together, living together in 2004. Bought a new house in 2005, and that was part of our our, our new uh, new beginning. Um, and so, I am most grateful to be doing this with a partner who uh, also speaks recovery. Um, that's that's what it was like, um, and a little bit about what happened. But I want to share with you more the. The joy of recovery. Um, this this weekend is called a design for living, um, and that's been my recovery. Um, I don't know if it's because of a low bottom behavior, or or what it is, and and I don't need to know what it is. But what I do know is that I think for every essay we have to come to a place of realizing that we have no options, and until that happens. Well, one of our readings says we did not give ourselves this program of recovery. And I don't, you know, sometimes that happens right away. And sometimes it happens years of coming into program. And, and it's not for me to say when or why. I just know that for me, it had to happen. And it happened early for me. Um, oh, I do have some options. I think 25 to life would be one. Um, <laughs> Destroying my family again would be another option. Um, my adult children um, disowning me, you know, those are all wonderful options, aren't they? No, I lost a family. This disease took away my family. This disease put me in prison. And this disease wants me dead. I was really fortunate that I didn't die. I didn't die. Um, today, uh, I think my wife and I enjoy a wonderful relationship, something that uh, we never imagined would happen as a result of, of a disease like this. We practice a program on a daily basis the best that we can. As was shared earlier, I don't work a perfect program, but I do work a consistent program, and that's really important for me. Um, oh, my. Thank you for letting me share. <laughs> I'm Lindsay. I'm a sexaholic. 
uh, and I'm the relative newcomer on this panel, which is uh, kind of nice. I've, I've been in the program uh, since 2012, uh, but I've really been a lifetime sexaholic. Uh, you know, the whole issue of pornography and masturbation and all that started early on, uh, you know, when I was younger, uh, junior high, high school type age, uh, and even some things before that. So it wasn't anything new. It's something that I did bring into the relationship uh, with my wife, got married young, um, but it was something that was always hidden, uh, although over the course of our relationship, there were there were periods of discovery, there were some things, you know, I, I shared after a, a faith-based retreat about my issues with pornography, and you know, that caused some, some unrest in the relationship. Uh, and then after that, you know, there was, it was, you know, we, we talked about, let's all talk and share about this, but no follow-up from, from the faith-based community on what to do and how to deal with it. Uh, so we went back underground, uh, and then just kind of was, was again hidden and, and not talked about, uh, took its, took its way into, into some adultery. Uh, again, no recognition that I had a problem or an issue. It's just a moral issue. And, you know, let's, let's kind of deal with it. Again, not a, not a whole lot of understanding of what was going on and, and not a lot of support, uh, you know, and how to get any help. Uh, my addiction took some different directions and, and back in 2012, uh, I was discovered, uh, in, in the middle of my addiction and, um, the next day, it ended up coming out to my wife, uh, and that was the beginning of my road back into recovery. Didn't think so at the time, because at the time, I looked at it as my whole world was crumbling. Uh, everything that I had built up, the relationship with my wife, you know, the the being involved with my faith-based community and in men's, re- men's recovery programs and in programs that are dealing with different kinds of men's issues, um, you know, leading those things, but at the same time practicing my addiction, kind of go figure, you know, that, that never happens in our, in our program at all. Um, but, you know, when it came out, uh, you know, the, the, again, we contacted the faith, our faith, faith-based community. We went back into action, same kind of thing we'd done before. Um, and then as things Kind of went in this time. Uh, I, we were not going to talk about. It. I wasn't going to talk about it with my my kids at that point. Uh, one of my one of my children found out about it, and then that opened up the can of worms, and and it started from there and spreading to to the rest of the the kids. So as that happened, uh, as has been mentioned before, that was a low point uh, on a Sunday as as my kids started finding out, and at and at this point they're all grown, all married. Uh, I felt like my world was falling apart. Uh, I was considering suicide. You know, it's just as has been mentioned before. Uh, that seems to be the way out. You know, when life becomes totally unbearable uh, and everything you've built up starts falling apart. Uh, although I can't say it's falling apart. I, I was tearing it apart. It was my, my actions that was destroying my own life. Um, you know, I considered that. You know, my higher power interjected, brought somebody in at that moment for me to go. <clears throat> excuse me, for me to go ahead and share what was going on. And uh, it was one of those things where he said, "It's okay. Let's, you know, we, you know, I, I love you, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna be here with you." So that was a good thing. Next day, I was on the computer uh, doing positive things. I typed in Christian sexual addiction. 
because I was at that point really confused about what was going on and a lot of everything came up. I mean, you know, just all kinds of articles and, and things to read. And, and as I was reading through that, I looked at it and, and I was just identifying, okay, that was me. That's me. And uh, I came on the essay website, started through the website, lo- reading it, looking at it, saying, okay, yeah, that's me. That's me. I went through the 20 questions. We have 20 questions. You know, and, and this is something when we do newcomers, we ask the newcomers, you know, have you done this, 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 this? Have you thought this? Uh, and as I went through the 20 questions, you know, I looked at it and go, yep, yep, yep. I think I ended up ticking off about 19 and a half questions <laughs> out of the 20. So, you know, it helped me realize, you know, it talks about here, we had to real, you know, our own self, enlightened self-interest must tell us this. It told me that there was something greater than what I really understood about what was going on in myself. Um, you know, I, I saw meetings, which was uh, really good. I could see some in, in my area, which was, uh, you know, at, at a church that I knew. So I thought, okay, that's good. Morning meeting, I could do that. But before I got to that, uh, my faith-based community said, you now need to disclose all of this to your to your kids. Everything that you were doing, all the things that were going on, and again, this is before I was in program, so I didn't have any, you know, no sponsor to talk to, no guidelines about how to deal with this. So I disclosed everything. Um, and at, after that time of disclosing to my three kids and their spouses, uh, I had to say goodbye to, I think at that time I had seven grandchildren, six or seven grandchildren at the time. Uh, so it was uh, goodbye without knowing if or when I was ever going to be able to see them. So uh, that was, a, that was a re- another one of those difficult points. Uh, but I went to my first meeting on that Friday, uh, and as I walked in, there was actually some guys in there from my faith-based community that I knew. And I was like, well, what are you doing here? <laughs> uh, but I knew, you know, obviously they're in that meeting that, that they shared the same disease that I did. And uh, so I was able to, I felt at home right away that this was a place that I could be, that I could go ahead and share and, and let people really know who I was and, and what goes on inside my head. Uh, so that was the beginning. Uh, it wasn't too long after that that, uh, again, I was you know looking at this whole sponsorship thing, and uh, this gentleman came up to me and heard that I was looking for a sponsor, so he grabbed my white book, pulled it out, looked at the names on it, and he said, this guy's going to be your sponsor. Uh, and that was one of God's uh, blessings of, of how that happened. Uh, so I uh, got a sponsor, started working the program, uh, working my steps. Uh, before that happened, you know, kind of in between the meeting with my kids and uh, uh, shortly after I was in, went into the program, uh, my wife did ask me to leave the house. So I was out of the house. Uh, and as, it, as it's been shared here, it, that was really a blessing because I had – no contact with my children, no contact with my grandchildren, no contact with my wife. Uh, so I had nothing else to do except to really get into the program. Uh, so it was really a blessing to be able to do that uh, without any interruptions. I could start working it, start working in my you know fourth step, really digging into it. So it gave me the opportunity to work the program. I was also told to go to 90 meetings in 90 days, so every day I was in a meeting. Uh, and I continued that for about oh, eight or eight or eight or nine months or so, uh, and that was another great way to get uh, really into the program and understand. So, 
Uh, got a good base for that. Uh, ultimately, through working the program, and this is where the, the, the hope came in, um, my children began to see some changes, and uh, eventually I was able to reestablish relationship with my children and start seeing my grandchildren, uh, relationship restored with my wife. Uh, but it was 18 months before we actually sold the house we were in and found another house and, and moved into another house. Uh, again, and part of that was because of my addiction. You know, some of the some of the the reasons why we had to do that was was because of my addiction. Um, but again, God's God's grace in all of that uh, to, for restoration of the relationship. Um, she, not you know, a while after you know, again, her story is she came into Essendon. Uh, I think about uh, eight or nine months, maybe six months. I don't know exactly how long you know, into the program. So we are in recovery together. Uh, we attend meetings together. I still attend five meetings, six meetings a week uh, because I need to do that. Uh, my program, as has been mentioned here, is not a perfect program. There have been ups and downs. Uh, I can become complacent. I can become, you know, bullheaded. Um, and I also understand that I still have character defects that pop up. And, you know, I have to deal with those, those character defects. Uh, but the program, working the program has given uh, has restored relationships. Uh, it has restored my relationship to God and, and brought out what was inside, brought it to the outside. Uh, and that's been a really good thing. So grateful for the program, uh, grateful for recovery, and I'm, I will be done. Now for questions. If anybody has written a question, just turn it upside down and pass it to the center of the aisle, and our runner will pick it up from you. Um, you can just hold your hand up if if you do have one. So, um, gentlemen, I'm gonna I'm gonna get started. Thank you so much for sharing your experience, strength, and hope. Um, we have oh, here's another one. Um, we have a number of questions related to slips and or relapses and how um, you would go about. Um, being transparent and honest with your spouse after something like that occurs. Um, and, and along those same lines, just what, what is your definition of that? How do you see, um, that maybe what, a, what kind of behavior for you is a slip? And then how do you communicate that, um, honestly, um, in your, in your coupleship? Anybody want to take that one? Hi, I'm Greg. <laughs> Sexaholic. Uh, so um, my, uh, I got married in recovery. Um, when I got married, my, uh, my spouse um, knew I was in this essay program, knew I was in this. Um, I actually, in dating, uh, showed her my step one, two, and three. She only read the step one, she said. Um, but... Uh, it's like, hey, if you're going to get in a relationship, here's who I am. Um, you know, know what you're getting yourself into. Um, and uh, we have come, at this point, we have come to an agreement. Um, uh, we only talk about losses of sobriety. That's the level at which we share um, our addictions. Um, loss of sobriety is as far as we go. Um, I don't want to pain shop with her. She doesn't want to pain shop with me. Um, I don't. She doesn't want to know about every temptation I have, every um, 
slip. It's not a loss of sobriety. That's close. That's edge stuff. Um, and that's our agreement. And it's, it's, you know, it's not, a, she's not the person I take my stuff to. I have a renewal partner I talk to, um, and a sad place. I have to find a new one soon. I think he's fading. It's been about nine years with him now. Um, and I had somebody for about three years before that. Um, and, uh, and that's who I first take it to. First, it goes to my renewal partner each and every day. Um, and I stay very current with that. Um, and my sponsor gets it. Um, I stay current with him. Um, my wife is neither my sponsor nor my renewal partner nor my higher power. Um, I learned before I, uh, I learned before I got the program, before I got married, I should say, when I was in the program, that I could not do this with my wife being my higher power. Um, because she was completely and wholly inadequate. Um, and so, um, it had to be my higher power. So that's the level at which we share. Um, yeah. Um, I think that's where I'll leave it at. But yeah, this level is just when I lose my sobriety, when the slips go with everything, all this, all the other lower level stuff goes with people in the program because that's who's going to help me, not her. Okay. Uh, again, my name is Tom. Um, I, I think relapses are not just about losing sobriety. Um, I, first of all, um, I'm grateful that my wife makes it very safe for me to be transparent. So there have been times where I have shared with her something as simple as, uh, I'm struggling today. There have been places, times when we have sat at a restaurant and I will just say, can we trade seats? Um, and she doesn't have to say, oh, who are you looking at over there? Um, you know, I am grateful that uh, Greg, Greg said earlier, Greg says, uh, uh, let me give you a tip. You're going to be asked seven, 12 different ways how to fix my husband. And I kiddingly said, well, I'm going to tell him first, get the bright light, put him in a chair. And but that's true. That's not true. And I am grateful that I, my wife has made it very safe for me to be transparent doesn't mean that I always, you know, welcome the uh, opportunity, but I also know that I, I need to be able to do that. I think she knows that she can ask me any questions she wants to. She has in the past. I've answered honestly, cringed, went, <laughs> okay. Um, you know, and that has helped me to be able to be, be transparent. Um, you know, and that's what I mean by saying relapses don't necessarily have to be about losing sobriety. Just the daily struggles of being a sexaholic. Um, you know, I'm not lust free. Uh, sorry. <laughs> but I am free not to lust. And one of those is being able to, uh, to be able to share with her something as simple as, you know, I'm struggling or let me sit in a different seat. I'm Lindsay, uh, and again, it's always good to know that when we're up here speaking, we, we speak for ourselves and our own recovery. There isn't any uh, essay guidelines on how to do this. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's just a matter for me. It's been what have my wife and I talked about and what is our agreement. Um, you know, obviously, you know, a relapse, and again, we talk about defining uh, relapse for me is a, is a loss of sobriety. Slip is... I looked at pornography or I, you know, I did something that was just not appropriate. Um, so in, in our agreement, if I have a slip, um, she would like to know and it's, it's within about a 20, she knows the 24 hour time period. 
for reporting. Uh, I'd like to say I was always good at that, and and uh, you know that would be a lie. We talked about some of the other things: white lies, lies. You know, no, that's it's not always been the case because my rationalization says, well, if I told her now, it's going to screw up this whole thing, and I don't want to do that. And you know, I'm trying to justify it by her behavior, and instead of realizing it's my behavior, so. Um, but it's been a pretty good thing. Uh, we do that. It's always it's always difficult. The most difficult times have been, uh, you know, all of my you know, everything I have, my my uh, my touchpad, my computer, all of those things have have locks on them. They have uh, uh, trackers uh, on what I do. Um, but occasionally I do. I mean, the, the hardest time. So I know if you know if I if I'm on my computer and I and I slip and go into a website that's not appropriate, it's gonna it's gonna come up. And, and it's going to be a topic of discussion. But the biggest issues and the biggest changes in the program are I found that there's times when something I'm looking at should be reported but doesn't get reported. So then it's always a decision of do I self-report and let it go or, you know, or, or you know, do I deal with it? Um, the change today versus prior to being in the program is that now if, if I don't talk about it, if, if I don't share it with her, it starts eating me up and chewing me up inside. Um, so that's been a good thing, uh, you know, where, where you know, I'll, I'll bring it out and we talk and, and it hurts, you know, it hurts her, you know, there's still that reaction. But I know it, what it does is it allows us to, to talk and, and talk about what's going on and, you know, what's happening in me and what's happening in the relationship and, uh, how to deal with these things. So, uh, it's working for us doing that. Um, you know, we had you know, the, the panel before the, the panel, the, the meeting before this was slips in intimacy after slips. Um, you know, this gets right to that question. Uh, there's always a, a few days after a slip where we just need to be apart and that's okay. Uh, I need to have that time to just kind of, work through whatever's going on inside uh, so that I can be really a part of the relationship after that. Uh, so, you know, that's that's what we've talked about. It's working for us at this point. I guess I'll share, too. <laughs> um, Brian, sexaholic. Um, you know, by the grace of God, for, for, for me... Uh, you know, my sobriety day is June 19th, 2009. Um, when I got in the program, um, as I said, my wife didn't want anything to do with me and, um, or the program. Um, but she also is in recovery. And um, for us in our relationship, she's never asked me once about my sobriety, about slips, relapse, nothing. Because the weird thing is that my higher power, well, two things. One is because for me, as we say in our program, resentment is the number one offender. That, that will take me out every time. And when I'm seething, actually not even seething, when I'm beginning in resentment, it's amazing because um, somehow my wife just knows. So if I'm struggling, I don't know, but there's a do-do-do-do, right, that, that somehow she just knows. And she has certainly her ways, and, you know, I, I don't pretend to know, you know, um, Essanon, the ways of Essanon. Um, but, but, you know, um, you know, Saturday mornings or when I, Tuesday nights or whenever I go to my meetings, I call to my kids, I call them better daddy meetings because when they were young, you know, it was about being a better daddy. And, uh, 
And, you know, there, there, there'll be times when I'm seething in resentment and that's just fertile ground for me to just want to go say, F it. I'm, you know, and I've had plenty of those moments. So I've been sober doesn't necessarily I mean I've been well. And so there are two times where I had, I would say, according to my sponsor, um, pushing against the rope. And, um, but the God of my understanding, my higher power has so graciously and in some ways humorously, um, uh, showed me exactly who I am. And I'll just share one. One time I was uh, traveling and I was in, in Japan and uh, for work and um, I got off the flight. And even when I, tra- I used to travel internationally quite a bit, my sponsor would say, you know, I would call him every day and I would say, well, I'm traveling. And he said, so? I said, well, there's a time difference. He goes, well, it doesn't mean I have to pick up. I said, okay. Um, so I, I flew into Japan. I was extremely tired, you know, hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. I was hungry. I was lonely and I was tired, right? Because I had just done such hard work traveling for my very important job. And so I said to myself, hey, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, and I, I, I deserve to get some relaxation. So I'm, I'm going to go to, I'm going to, I'm, you know, I've been traveling a lot. Of, I'm, I'm going to go get a massage, you know, a legal one. But I ended up going to the red light district in Tokyo for a legal massage, <laughs> And um, so I remember walking and kind of perusing the street, and I was tired, um, just stuck and stupid. And I walked, and I decided, you know, I saw on this this these bunch of signs. And as I'm thinking to myself, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna go do this, not even thinking that I'm about to throw away several years of sobriety. Um, I look at the sign, and there's this picture and all this stuff. And then underneath that picture, the name of the place is called Club Addict. <laughs> and I read that, and I honestly, I was like, I literally laughed out loud. Um, because I, and I thank God. I said, God, thank you for reminding me who I am. And so I went to the nearest TGIF, got my dinner, went back to my hotel, called my sponsor, and thankfully... He did pick up and told him. And so for me, my experience has been being rigorously honest with my sponsor. And I don't do that all the time, like immediately. I don't do that all the time, but, but immediately sharing with him when I'm stuck and stupid. And honestly, too, like the relationship I have with my sponsor, sometimes I just feel like he's got, you know, if I'm stuck and stupid, he just, hey, you stuck and stupid. <laughs> and, um, and I'm kind of jolted back into reality. So as far as, as far as my wife is concerned, she's never asked me, not once. And we work our programs independently. Um, but I know she just knows because we, when we're spiritually connected, there's a connection there. And when there's disconnection, and sometimes it's not just me, it's maybe her, but I have to clean my side of the street. So that's what I've learned to do. And I have a sponsor who will call me on my bullshit all the time. So I'm grateful for that. Thanks, Brian. So we have a, a few questions about intimacy, and they're put in, in a couple of different ways. Um, so I'm going to kind of combine them. Um, one talks about how how do you practically go about connecting, um, having emotional intimacy with your partner, and um, and also if some of you could talk about um, how your your brain reacts to intimacy, real intimacy with your spouse um, versus the essay acting out brain, if that makes sense. Um, so two parts, 
emotional intimacy and how does your brain differentiate between the acting out and then actually having a sexual intimacy with your spouse or partner? Sure. Brian, um, really easy questions. Thank you. Um, you know, f- for me, when I, when I first started acting out when I was like, you know, you know, five, six, um, I was told when I got into the meetings that I was really sick because for me, I didn't really look at the pornographic pictures. I read the stories, the erotic stories. And so for me, there, there was this place of complete fantasy. I wanted to be anyone that I, I didn't want to be the person I was. I wanted to be someone else. And, um, so for me, uh, you know, for a long time, um, I convinced myself that, well, I'm not, I'm not really a sex addict. I, I just, it's not that I want sex. I just, I just want to connect with my wife and be loved, you know. That's, that's what I convinced myself. And, uh, of course, you know, acting out and, and just crossing lines and all that to get my fix. I was convinced, obviously, when I came into these rooms that I'm, I'm fully and completely a sex addict, but I'm also addicted to lust. I'm, I'm addicted to wanting to be lusted after. And so the big challenge for my wife and I is I am probably more the, uh, I'm the one that wants to connect. I'm the one, you know, we come home and I, I want the conversation. You know, to me, I want to connect for that first 30 minutes and let's talk about our day. You know, she's maybe more the one that will be, hey, my, my day was good. Why are you asking me, right? Um, and and so I justified, it was almost a self-righteous justification of like, I'm like really wanting to connect emotionally. And so um, when we, when we were, you know, and I was living in a separate bedroom for three and a half years, what we would do is we would have um, family meetings and we learned this from a different program, but we'd have family meetings and set a timer, uh, you know, three minute timer on our phone and we would just share, you know, we'd go through some meetings, just run it like a meeting. My sponsors just run it like a meeting, right? No crosstalk. You know, you know, no facial expression, just listen. And, um, and sometimes for the, her three minutes, she'd just be quiet. She wouldn't say anything. It's very uncomfortable, right? And then I started thinking, well, maybe I'll borrow her three minutes because I can talk, right? So, um, <laughs> so for us, we had to learn that. And for, for, for us, it was this emotional connecting where she could feel free and safe to just be quiet and to be silent and that would be okay. And for me, I had to learn that my three minutes of sharing that I could share and that she will sit without judgment and just listen. And not that she was or was, I don't know, but I felt that. I felt like, oh my gosh, I can't say this because it's not going to sound right, etc. So that really created a good uh, um, perspective for us in, in, in that time. And um, so that really developed a deep sense of emotional intimacy for us. And to, again, not having, I literally didn't physically touch my wife for three and a half years. The only time was on Sundays when we couldn't go to our faith community, we'd have kind of uh, family time and then we'd end with prayer. And I'd always make sure I sat next to her because we'd shake, we'd hold hands. That was the only time. <laughs> so I really liked that. It was, I was really spiritual on those days. Um, and, uh, and so that, just understanding that sex was optional was super, super helpful. Um, 
And that's what I was told, right? So as far as sex and, you know, when we entered back into, when I entered back into the bedroom, um, it's, it, it I, I don't know if I struggled so much with fantasy, kind of the lizard part of my brain, right? Um, but I know that if we're having sex or sexual intimacy without first that emotional intimacy, that emotional connection, I know my brain can go to different places. And so, I just know that we, we just have to have that emotional, spiritual connection. And it doesn't have to mean like, you know, huge time of, of sharing or whatever, but just that we're connecting and we're connected. Um, and that's what's been helpful for me. Thanks for letting me share. Thanks, Brian. Greg Sexaholic. Um, so this is a very, I've been to like, I don't know, three couples meetings. I held sexuality the last three unity conferences and, been one of the opening couples for sharing on this topic. It's kind of a complicated one. I'm not going to be able to cover it in like my three to four minutes here. Um, there's a lot in it, and I have to try to kind of not share her side of the street. I'm trying to stare entirely off of her side, so it makes it even more interesting on this one. <sighs> to be honest, um, so emotion, I'll start with the emotional intimacy part of it. Um, it is uh, part of our emotional intimacy is dealing with life problems first. I can't, ha- I can't really be emotionally intimate with my wife if we're not dealing with our finances. Um, it, we have a monthly meeting on finances, uh, like a business meeting. We use the, uh, the business meeting format from the meetings. Um, those of you who do not like business meetings, I'm sorry for you. You better learn them because they're great. Uh, business meetings are very important. Uh, you've done the, for my meeting, they're important. And for my family, they're important. And so we do, we do a financial business meeting once a month. Um, that helps with our intimacy because we're able to go, that's handled. That's done. We budget each month. We take care of it. It's one of our defects that gets in the way of emotional intimacy. If I don't deal with my defects, I'm not going to be able to be intimate. I have to deal with those because they're the things that stop intimacy. Um, so we deal with our financial defects. Uh, we have to deal with our bills and our, and our, and our responsibilities. Um, I've been told by some old-timers in the program, and I, I fully accept this, that this is a program of growing up. It says in the white book, I left I left growing up, um, I, I left off growing up, I, I had to begin off growing up, but I left off at the age of eight. Um, and so Roy stopped growing up at eight and had to, finish, had to finish growing up here in the program. I stopped somewhere around 10 or 11, and I have to grow up. And uh, I used to always, my first few years, go, I'm a teenager now. Oh, I'm kind of in my 20s now. I was actually in my 30s, but, you know, I was kind of growing up a little bit. I was starting to learn what it was to be an adult. Uh, and this is about adulting, and I don't adult very well. Um, um, there's a phrase I've heard that I, I, my sponsees hear from me a lot. Um, children do what feels good. Adults make a plan and follow it. Um, and that's, uh, my plan is the program. My plan is the steps, and I have to deal with that. If I don't, If we don't do that stuff, we don't have emotional intimacy because there's all this other crap flying around the room. Um, and, um, and that's part, that's a big part of emotional intimacy. And yeah, we talk, we sit down, we, how was your day? We have those kind of conversations. We have fun. Fun is part of intimacy. Uh, actually, that's one thing, you know, we, we just have, we find things that we enjoy to do together and we laugh together. That, that's all important. That's all part of it. Um, and it's not for a plan of having sex. It's for a plan of that. Um, Sex is complicated in my, I got married in recovery. I was sober when I got married. Um, I hadn't, I know, my loss of sense of sobriety in marriage came much later, like five or six, seven years. A lot of it's intertwined with my other program, uh, with resentments that I allowed to, to, to go up that, um, 
it's complicated on that part um, and how it worked. Um, we have never really had a lot of sex in our marriage. Sexual intimacy has been a very difficult thing. Um, there's been medical things in the way. There's been uh, emotional things in the way. Um, and um, what I can share that I think mine to share is that with my one of, I talked about renewal partners before. My renewal partner and I, for the better part of six years, talked about our sexual intimacy and lust every single week. It was at least one or two days of our conversations were entirely focused on where is lust in my marriage and where is sex and what is appropriate and what's okay. Um, I struggle with the shame of sex, of wanting sex. Um, I struggle with the shame of being willing to ask for it. I struggle with the shame of talking about it. I have a lot of defects related to that, just a ton. And I have to continue to talk about it. Um, sex, sex, since sex was very limited, um, it's been very difficult to say no when she's interested. But there's been times when I've had to. But I'm not in a good headspace. And I have to have a safe space where I can say no. And I've said no even in the middle because I have to. I don't always say no in the middle when I need to. Uh, sometimes I don't say no when I need to, and then I feel like crap afterwards. Um, and um, for me, what does the difference between acting out sex and regular sex is? This is kind of what I've come to after all these discussions. I mean, seriously, years of discussions and a bunch of meetings on healthy sexuality. Um, um, is that I need to be there in that moment. I need to be present. The only person in there is my wife, and I'm not fantasizing about her either. She is as flawed and messed up as she is, and here we are. Um, and I am not, and that could mean that maybe sex isn't possible because I have other bleep going on in my head. Um, and so I have to be present. And if I'm not present in that moment, then that's the clue to me that I need to surrender this moment and even if the moment's not going to come around for a few months, well, that's the way it is. Um, and um, and just try to go with that. Um, that's the short answer. Uh, if you have a couple hours, you can talk to me afterwards. <laughs> Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Greg. I can't really tell you about the sexaholic brain, but I can tell you about this sexaholic brain. Um, when the when the word intimacy flashes across, I think of. Not beaches, not grapes. I think of bedrooms and sex. And that's the sexaholic brain, and that's where I was. I thought that the quickest way to intimacy was in that room, and and that's that's just where it was all at. Um, I don't think like that anymore. Uh, we, As has been mentioned, we learn in essay that sex is optional, and I read those words and went, what? That's an option I'm going to take. <laughs> I was pretty young in recovery back then. <laughs> Today, I've learned that if I am going to practice intimacy, which is knowing and being known, being willing to let my, my life partner know who I am, everything about me, and being willing to find out where is she at, knowing her today, sex is going to take care of itself. I don't need to worry about that anymore. Um, I can tell you that, let's see, to be perfectly honest, we're, we're in a pretty dry period as far as connection right now. We've got, uh, we've got a home full of boomerang kids, you know, the ones that you send away and they come back. 
Yeah, we've got a whole houseful of boomerang kids, and it takes a toll on on intimacy. And so we try to carve out little places here and there. But I've learned that uh, over the years of recovery, it's it's more about the little things. Um, you know, we try not to talk about other philosophies, but there's this certain thing about uh, languages, and I'll leave it at that, where we try to do these little things, you know, a non-sexual touch as, as I'm passing, um, because she likes that. Um, a word of encouragement that she'll give me, because I like that. You know, these are things that, uh, sorry, did I offend the dog? <laughs> <laughs> But little things like that, that, that actually mean a lot. Um, you know, and I can go back, like I said, it's probably been, I don't know, probably a year and a half or so that we, at least I've been experiencing this rather dry period as far as connection is concerned. Um, you know, and it's not the end of the world. I mean, we've been married a long time. Um, she'll tell you one day more than I will, but. <laughs> But uh, we've been married, uh, what do I have, 28 years? Yeah, we've been together 28 years, so it's been a long journey. Um, and this sexaholic brain is not focused on on sex as, as an act of intimacy, if that makes any sense. It's more, you know, what I mentioned about being intimate, practicing intimacy, knowing and being known, and let the rest of it just kind of take care of itself. Um Getting older helps a lot too. Um, that's that's another story. Um, I like where we're at right now as far as what we're trying to learn. Um, you know, that topic of healthy sexuality comes up a lot, and I think you know, isn't it strange? I had to learn about healthy sexaholics or se- healthy sexuality from a bunch of sexaholics and essenons who had no idea what it was, and I think about this journey and how we learn from each other, and I've got a better perspective today than I ever had, uh, but I know that that's today, and tomorrow's going to be something different, um, and we'll just see what, what happens then. Thank you for letting me share. And I guess it's just going right down the line again. Uh, <laughs> um, in regards to emotional intimacy, uh, one of the really... Uh, good things about uh, my wife's and my relationship is uh, that from the very beginning of our relationship, we've been we've been good friends. Uh, I'm grateful that before we started dating, we were friends. Uh, she was a friend of my sister's, uh, so we did a lot of things together. So we we had an opportunity to develop some good friendship type uh, relationships before we became uh, you know be, before we became attracted to each other and and. You know, got married, so there's at least the basis for some friendship. Now, you know, I, I would have thought I had a really good emotionally intimate relationship with my wife, but it's very hard to have an emotional, intimately emotional relationship when you have a whole other part of your life that's that's hidden, uh, that's not known. Um, so, you know, I had to change, or you know, I had to come to a, a better understanding of what the whole idea of emotional intimacy means. Um, and the program has helped me to understand that, to look at this. Um, you know, the, I, to me, a lot of times, you know, when we talk about in, in, in intimacy and things like that, I, I was always the kind that wanted to have the perfect setup for 
you know, we talk about the, the romantic, the intrigue, those kinds of things. I would always like to go away for the perfect weekend or set the scenario for intimacy, uh, you know, the, the, all that, all the things that go along with that to try to promote intimacy. Uh, again, that's juvenile thinking. That's kind of in the past. Uh, and my understanding of that is the emotional intimacy is occurring because I'm known. She knows who I am. Uh, she knows that I'm a sexaholic. Uh, she knows that I'm no longer perfect, which is a good thing. Um, you know, she has an understanding of who I am. And because of that, I can, I can share on a deeper, more intimate level than I could before. Because there's always this hidden part of my, you know, that was going on that she had no knowledge about or really didn't know too much about. So the emotional intimacy has been something that's been developed over a period of time just because we can be open with each other. Uh, that really gives us a good springboard for, for intimacy. Um, you know, some of the things we do now to, to have that is, is in the morning, you know, she gets ready and I, and I go through making coffee, making breakfast, and then we sit down to breakfast together and, and we have an opportunity to talk. We're both doing our journal writing, and as we're doing our journal writing and our devotionals, there are things that come up in the devotionals that allow us to talk about what's going on and you know what's happening inside of you. So uh, we set the scene for emotional intimacy by being able to share some time together uh, and talk about something that, that talks about program. We have program materials that we can talk about. We have our faith-based materials that we can talk about. So it really is a matter of setting the scene for that opportunity to, to say what's going on with you right now, what's happening. The other thing is, has been mentioned before, uh, my wife has that sixth sense of if, she, if something's not going right inside my head, she has the ability to be able to, to say what's going on. What's, you know, we think we're very, you know, this, you know, we can put up this, you know, little false front and nobody can see through that false front, but, you know, my wife has the ability to be able to, to see that. And that's a good thing. BS meter, whatever we want to call it. She has that ability to do that. Sixth sense, you know, whatever. Um, so, so again, when there's something going on, she can tell that. You know, again, kind of flipping back to the other question we had about slips. Uh, you know, as, as was mentioned before, she can see something's going on inside of me. Um, and again, that allows us to be emotionally intimate. She can ask me questions, and we can talk about what's what's happening. Um, so the emotional intimacy is what forms the basis for the the sexual intimacy that that comes down the road. Um, you know, a couple of things. Other things have been mentioned. You know, if if we're in 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 the act of being intimate, um, we have the freedom to say to to stop. I mean, there have been times when when that was going on that. Stuff's going on in my mind, and it may be sexual going on in my mind. It may be something that that's bugging me from work, or or just anything that's keeping me from being present while I'm there. And and I, you know, there's times when I've had to pause and uh, just pray. You know, us pray together, um, and then just wait to get back into that whole emotional intimacy. So if there's something blocking it, it's good to just say no. Um, we've also had the experience, you know, when I was out of the house and, uh, that of, of having that sexual abstinence. Uh, and that was again, a very good time, uh, for us because I had to reconnect with her on that emotional basis. I had to start re you know, I had to start dating my wife all over again. 
I had, we, you know, we had boundaries that were in place and we had to just kind of work back through of how do we rebuild this relationship that I tore apart. Um, so that gave us a good opportunity to do that, to, to develop that, to redevelop the intimacy in a more healthy way uh, than what we had before. And, you know, the, the funny thing is we've heard, you know, being in the faith-based community, you hear a lot of these things. There's a lot of talk about all of this stuff. But until, you know, as, as it was mentioned, until I actually came into this program and finally got honest with who I am and what's, what goes on inside of me and uh, what I'm capable of doing, until I got honest, um, then, you know, that true intimacy really could at that point start to develop and grow. Uh, we celebrated our 40th anniversary this last summer, which was a, again, that is only by the grace of our higher power that we're even together. Uh, you know, we've got that intimacy, uh, again, has gone out to, you know, my, my children, my grandchildren, the opportunity to be able to connect with them, again, on a healthy level. Uh, again, not perfect. I mean, there's far from perfection, but, I have to look back and say there's been so much progress over the last, you know, five years or so since I came into the program that I'm grateful for that. Could not have happened without discovery. Couldn't have happened without all of the things that went on uh, and brought me into this program. So. So we have about 20 minutes left, and um, I'm going to go ahead and ask for one one of you to respond for the um, for the next few questions so that we can get through a little bit more. Um, I'm going to move on to um, this meeting is about understanding and compassion, and that's what we're doing and building here. Um, so at what point in your recovery were you able to start viewing your spouse's pain compassionately, and how do you look for um, compassion from your spouse? So does anybody want to? Take that one about um, giving and receiving compassion and understanding. Thank you. Can we have the next question, please? I think for me it was... um, a lot of things kind of came into play. Working my steps, uh, getting to step four, uh, and, and taking a moral inventory of myself, um, was one of the things. The other thing was coming to places like this. I love to listen to the Essanon stories. Um, helped me get in touch with the pain that I had caused. Um, and helped me to realize also the importance of, of listening. Um, you know, I, I wish I could tell you that I don't want to try and fix my wife anymore, but that, that I'd be lying to you. Uh, my first default is, well, let me see if I can fix this. And, you know, she keeps saying, I'm not looking to get fixed, okay? I just need to be listened to. And, and she'll probably be saying that to me on my deathbed. Now will you listen? <laughs> I have no choice. Go ahead. I'll listen. Um, but I think step four was really huge for me, um, and getting in touch with that and also being objective about that. And that was another thing, you know, a lot of people do a a moral inventory of themselves 
and it can get pretty triggery and it can get pretty um, upsetting. Um, but at the same time, for me at least, it was very revealing and probably the best step I had ever worked uh, because it was also very freeing and it allowed me to make some changes. Um, I'll share a real quick story. Um, I got off the phone with a sponsee once, and this was when uh, our youngest was still a teenager. He was in the house. Oh, wait a minute. He's still in the house. I forgot about that. But I got off the phone, and and my wife looked at me. She goes, you know, I sure wish you could listen to him the way you listen to your sponsees. And I just went, oh, God. She got me. And so I learned there about how to listen and how to have compassion. And if she was to tell the rest of the story, she would tell you that she had never heard me talk to somebody as compassionately as I did after that. And I needed to hear that. So it's practice, practice, practice. Um, Sorry. Progress, not perfection. Um, It seems like... As an Essanon, we we struggle with boundaries, and we don't we we want to practice having boundaries, but we also don't want to punish. Um, and there are a lot of feelings in there. So, from your perspective, what's um, the difference between boundary and punish coming from an Essanon? Hi, I'm Greg, sexaholic. Um, I have unique perspective on boundaries because of other parts of my life. But I will say this. Um, the difference when a boundary is there is when uh, I am not being attacked, shamed, or um, I'm much easier to hear when it's not being aggressive at me. And if, if my wife says, um, you know, I am not doing this, and this is not, I'm not engaging in that, I can hear that. I, I can hear that pretty well. When she tries to tell me you're not doing this or you can't do that or you this, you that, I every defense in me comes up. Now I have to use my program to not get defensive, so generally I'll just be quiet if I'm healthy. If I'm not healthy, of course, I'll react in my own resentment. So I think that's the simple answer for me is that it's really, if it's directed at you, 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 I'm not going to hear it. If it's I, 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 I'm going to be able to hear it pretty well. Um, so there. Thank you. This question is about trust. Um, what practices and principles do you as an SA um, practice when you're trying to build trust with your partner? These are great questions. Hard, but great. Uh, Brian, sexaholic. Um, I think earlier when I got into the program, um, I mean, I, the word trust was foreign because I, I mean I didn't trust myself, and uh, you know, 
I was, my behavior was, un, you know, not trustworthy. I think what was helpful for me is that I had people in my life, my sponsor and other men in the program that on a day in and day out basis would remind me that I'm not trustworthy. And I remember early on, like my, you know, my sponsor would tell me, Hey, you know, uh, you know, meeting starts at, uh, what time does the meeting start? I said, seven o'clock. No, you got to come 30 minutes, seven thirty. no, 30 minutes before the meeting starts. So I'm like, Oh, okay, great. And I come seven fifteen, and, uh, you know, he'd say to me, uh, you, you, you didn't show up on time. And I said, well, that meeting starts. I thought that was kind of optional. And, um, he said, you said you were going to show up on time. And I said, well, yeah. And he goes, well, so you lied. I was like, well, no, that's kind of a stretch. I mean, I, I was late. I mean, I, I didn't really lie. I just was late. I mean, right. Um, and no, he said, you lied. You, you said you were going to come and, and you didn't. And so, I mean, I felt honestly, like early on, I felt emotionally abused by this man. I was like, oh my God, you're really hurting my feelings, <laughs> you know? Um, but I remember, uh, few months in, um, my wife was willing to meet with my sponsor and his wife. And, um, after that, you know, he told me in no uncertain terms, you know, my job was to, to grow the food and shut up. And, um, as my wife sat there, met his spouse who's in recovery as well, and just saw the interaction, you know, she, we only talked through text at that time. Um, but her words to me was, she said, I really like him. And um, part of it is, again, because she knew that this person and this program would call me on my BS. And I got to tell you, it felt really harsh at first, but what I realized, it was, it was without judgment. It was identification. And so for me, I learned how to be trustworthy in the little things first, showing up on time, saying, doing what I was going to say and saying what I was going to do and doing what I was going to say. Um, I, I, to me, it was like, well, I'm too important for that. I, I've got an important job. Well, I used to have an important job, uh, jobless now, um, you know, at that time. And so I, I, it was this, this arrogant self-importance that was like, you know, and people catered to that. And man, when I got in the rooms of SA, there was no catering. Um, there was just a lot of laughter at my expense. Um, and, and so again, just a lot of ego deflation. Because again, for me, it was like the rules didn't apply. And so in the little things, I had to learn how to be more trustworthy. And that was one of the main things that after about, about five months, Thanksgiving weekend, when my wife said that she's not, she's not saying that we're going to get back together, but she was ready to take a step to invite me back into the home. And the reason why is she told our therapist, she goes, again, because I, there's actual change. It's not just talk. It's not just promises, it's actual change. So when she invited me to dinner at the house um, with the family and, you know, I said I was going to be there at 6.30, I got there at 6 o'clock, 30 minutes before, because that's what I was taught to do. She was like, who are you, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, it's just, again, little things. It had nothing, to, it, sobriety, we never talked about programs. It was just those little things. And so I think part of that was, Earning, um, earning trust back in little ways. Thanks. Thank you very much. I know these questions are, like I said, great. Um, 
So I'm going to do my best to combine um, some questions, and they really have to do with an SNON kind of looking from the outside in and and having a sense that something doesn't feel right, but not really knowing what to do about it. Um, some examples were um, a, a spouse having a good amount of sobriety, but um, using um, electronics constantly, um, or I can I can only I can occasionally look at porn and and um, and act out, or um, just even having conversations about recovery. Um, so the question would be, what is from your perspective, kind of, um, if the, if those things apply to you, what is your perspective on that? And, um, how would you share your recovery with your spouse? (laughs) So maybe to break it down, if, if an SNN senses that something's not, not quite right, how um, how would you share your recovery if if there is I think we talked about slips earlier, but let's just go with sharing recovery. Um, in what ways do you talk about recovery with your spouse? Uh, I think I understand the question, <laughs> barely. Um, I think open and honesty is is key and tantamount to this program for me, uh, along with a willingness to 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 be open and honest. Um, but in this particular um, scenario, I would I would not shy away from a question from my wife if she was to ask me, "What does recovery look like t- for you?" Because it doesn't put me under the gun. It just asks me a real simple question. Um, and if she's not okay with that, then she should have the freedom to say, you know, I don't know if I'm really okay with that. Um, I picked SA because I'm really sick. Um, people get sober in other recovery programs. Um, and, and SA is not better or worse than any other ones, but I picked it because I needed this, this firm bottom line sobriety definition um, because I know that I, I can't do another program it wouldn't I, I wouldn't I wouldn't be sober I can tell you that for me the road has narrowed um, you know I have people that'll sit there I tell my sponsees if you call me and tell me that lust is low I'm gonna hang up on you <laughs> compared to what compared to those bottom line behaviors from years ago I want to know where are you with lust today where are you with us today? And, you know, questions like that, I would probably not shy away from either. Don't you ask those. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. I see you hiding back there. Um, but I wouldn't shy away from those because I want to be honest. I remember I said earlier about being known and knowing, and, and that's part of being known. You know, sexaholism is not a pretty disease. Um, 
I've tried to pretty it up the best I can. It just doesn't work. Uh, it's just not a pretty disease. And so, um, yeah, open, honest conversation, um, you know, about where that is. And if the SNR isn't good about they're comfortable with that, then there's the freedom to say, I'm not really comfortable with that. Um, and that's got to go both ways. And I'll end with this. I shared in another meeting about so often after, uh, especially after disclosure, you end up with this good parent, bad child relationship. And, and marriages aren't supposed to be that way, you know, and both partners have to get back to that equal footing um, and get away from that bad child, good parent relationship. Um, you know, it's going to be there probably for a while, but part of it is getting back to that 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 even footing. Um, that's all I got. <laughs> well put. So one last question, um, and uh, <laughs> this is uh, the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. And how do you bridge that? We're setting him up. He's done. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. This is okay. This is not exactly a really narrowly defined question. So. Uh, you know, obviously, kind of the short answer is 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 forgiveness has got to come first before reconciliation, um, but not necessarily. I mean, I, uh, you know, with with my wife, uh, especially early on in in our recovery together, uh, there was, you know, as we've talked, she shared with me that very early on she, uh, you know, she came to an uh, an idea of forgiveness, you know, and, and that was a, a difficult issue for her to share with other people in our faith-based community. She said, you know, I forgive him. Um, but again, that's, that's between her and her higher power. Um, you know, and, and she extended that to me, but yeah. And that was, that's, that's for her. And that's part of her recovery and her program. Uh, it's what she has to do. The reconciliation part, uh, was something that had to take place over a period of time. Uh, and reconciliation involves really everything that we've already talked about. It involves rebuilding trust. It involves developing that emotional intimacy. It involves showing up on time, doing what you said you're going to do, um, working my program. I know for my wife it was, and, and this is an ongoing thing. If I'm not working my program, if I'm not actively working my program, if I'm not going to my meetings, if I'm not working with my sponsor, if I'm not doing my steps, um, that inhibits re- reconciliation. Uh, that inhibits that reconnection part of it. Um, but reconciliation is something that, that had to take place over a period of time. I had to show that I was committed to, re- to, committed to recovery, committed to the relationship, uh, committed to my higher power, uh, before that gave her the freedom to have to, to start reconciling. And it took it it did take a period of time to do that. But that was that was okay. Now for me I had to get to a point of two things. One, I had to accept the fact she may never forgive me. 
and we may never be reconciled. That that was part of that acceptance of, of what I had done in terms of my, my acting out and, and part of my recovery. And that was for my recovery. I mean, I, I had, in order for me to really truly recover and start releasing resentments and fears and a lot of those things that we come up with in our, in our fourth step, uh, I had to look at it and say, if this never happens, if we are never reconciled, then I have to accept that. I have to be okay with that. So that was from my part. And that gave me the freedom to let go of a lot of the expectations that I had uh, for recovery uh, and for reconciliation. If I could say this may never happen, then, you know, I didn't have to sit there and try to think of the ways to get reconciliation or, you know, or do anything to manipulate. Because, you know, a, a big part of our disease, big part of my disease is manipulation. Uh, if I want you to do something, I'm going to do the things to make you do what I want you to do. Um, but part of the acceptance of the fact that it may never happen allowed me to let go of some of that manipulative behavior. Um, so it, 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 reconciliation is a process. Now, that was in the initial part of it. There's still, as we go along, when we get to slips, you know, if there's a slip, you know, there has to be some, there, there's, there's forgiveness and there's reconciliation. And again, and it has to be, I have to be open. I have to be honest. I have to be willing to, to admit whatever's going on inside of me. Uh, to give her the freedom uh, and to give her that level ground so that she can go ahead and move through reconciliation. So hope that was helpful. Hope that answered the question. As a member of SNN, I am sincerely grateful that you all volunteered to be on this panel and it was, it's much appreciated. Um, that's all the time we have for the meeting. Please remember that this is an anonymous program, and please keep all the names and shares you've heard in this meeting to yourselves. Would an SNON member please come forward and read the selected reading from the SNON 12 Steps, pages 1 and 2? My name is Nahid. SNON 12 Steps, Step 1. We are concerned with two principles in step one, that we cannot control the sexaholic or his or her sexual behavior, and that because of our attempts to do so, our lives have become unmanageable. When sexaholism persisted, we began to feel that we were chasing a snowball downhill. We suffered from heartbreaks, crises, and emotional and physical ailments. Either we blame the sexaholic for all these things or we blamed ourselves. We believed that if we were only a stronger or a smarter or sexier, we could somehow control the sexaholic and solve our problems. We had learned to be reactors rather than responders in our relationships. Some of us had taken part in the sex, sexaholic's activities in, a, in an attempt to hold the relationship together. Others had lectured and scolded in vehement opposition. Some of us had cried and pleaded and asked for promises. Others had suffered quietly, hoping and praying, afraid to tell anyone about the problem. Many of us had tried all the above. In Essanon, we come to realize that just as we were not the cause of the sexaholics acting out, we cannot cure it either. We learned that it is not our responsibility to keep the sexaholic sexually sober. 
Instead, it is our job to manage our own lives, whether or not the sexaholic chooses sobriety. It helped to learn that the sexaholic is suffering from a spiritual and emotional illness, and it helped to learn that we can lovingly detach from that illness. Most of all, it helped to learn that we too are suffering from an illness, one that can drive us to unconsciously seek our rejection, rejection, victimization, and heartbreak. As we begin to devote ourselves to 12-step recovery, an amazing thing takes place. We let our hardships and problems become our teachers, and we become grateful for the lessons they teach us. We learn we are not alone in facing the problem of sexaholism. We accept the help of the group and the help of a higher power. We allow that, po- we, we allow that power far greater than ourselves to come to our aid and we find hope. All right, so if we could all stand and join hands somehow. <laughs> Going to come down here. This is what we do. Shuffle, shuffle, shuffle. <laughs> you all are great sports, everybody. And after a moment of silence, we'll say the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Keep coming back. It works if you work it and you're worth it. Thank you, everybody. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.